This is the first of three podcasts looking at some of the most poetic shots in the history of cinema. Not the greatest, the longest, most beautiful, or technically innovative. The most poetic. By which I mean a shot that defines the film's content. What I call compound images. For what we see is so strong, it breaks through the surface to reveal the meaning of the film. So, no matter how audacious or iconic some shots are, I'm concentrating instead on an image's thematic force. For instance, in John Woo's Hard Boiled, when Tequila Lewen and Alan shoot their way out of the hospital. James Cameron's The Terminator 2 Judgment Day, when the T-1000 freezes to a halt in liquid nitrogen. Or Richard Linklater's Boyhood, when young Mason Evans Jr. lies back on the grass and looks up at the sky. I'm concentrating instead on an image's thematic force. This podcast focuses on light, shadow and silhouette. In 1897, Bram Stoker wrote the classic vampire novel, Dracula. Yet, despite receiving lavish praise, the book itself did not sell well. And it wasn't until 1922 that the first adaptation reached the screen. Nosferatu was directed by F. W. Murnau, but his mastery of filmmaking was unfortunately not matched by his legal acumen. The problem was that his producers had not secured the film rights from Stoker's widow, Florence. No sooner had the film opened in Berlin to ecstatic reviews than lawyers for Stoker's estate sued for violation of copyright and the German courts ruled that all prints be destroyed. However, through fortuitous timing, several copies of the film escaped the celluloid purge. Nosferatu had already been shipped to the United States for screening, where, due to a legal loophole, Stoker's work was now in the public domain. The prince survived and a true masterpiece was rescued from oblivion. The challenge for any director undertaking a horror film is to render the premise plausible. So, unless you can convince your audience that there are such entities as vampires, beings that can alter their DNA and transform into bats, wolves and dogs, or fog, mist and vapour, that even in human form they can defy gravity, vanish before your eyes and instantly reappear elsewhere, your audience will either be laughing in the aisles or heading for the exit. But even then, within any fantasy, there has to be parameters within which the story must adhere to its own logic. Which means, if your lead character is a demon that cannot bear the sight of its own reflection, you cannot have them look at themselves in a mirror. If they have denounced the Christian God and cannot tolerate the sight of a crucifix, you cannot have them hanging around churches. Compared to today, special effects were severely limited back in 1922. But nonetheless, Murnau and his cinematographers Fritz Arno Wagner and Gunther Klampf were able to conjure up some very startling moments. Nosferatu appears before us as a translucent image and then simply vanishes before our eyes. And then, through stop-motion photography, his coffin unwraps and opens up, all of its own accord. But the image I'm focusing on comes late in the story when the vampire is creeping up a staircase towards his latest victim. In order to emphasise Nosferatu's unworldliness, Murno, Wagner and Krampf had tried to present him in different ways so each new one was always arresting. And in this instance, Murno chose to show Nosferatu not in his physical form or in silhouette, but in shadow, 
which of course violates the logic. But that is an important lesson to note when telling a story in film. Poetry can override reason. When an image is so powerful, when it impacts so heavily on an audience's emotional state, they willingly overlook the lack of logic and go with their feelings. Made in 1955, The Night of the Hunter is adapted from David Grubb's debut novel of the same name, which won the National Book Award two years earlier. The story takes place during the Great Depression and was inspired by a real-life case that occurred in Grubbs' home state of Virginia. Hermann Drent was born in the Netherlands. Upon arriving in America, he used different pseudonyms to place Lonely Heart ads in local newspapers. He would then befriend the women who responded, steal their money and murder them. Long-time actor and first-time director Charles Lawton brought Grubbs' novel to the screen, where it centres on two children, John and Pearl Harper, whose father, Ben, is executed for armed robbery. Their mother, Willa, played by Shelley Winters, then marries Reverend Powell, played by Robert Mitchum. Only Powell is not a reverend. He is an ex-con who had been cellmates with Willa's late husband, and while there, had learned that the money Harper stole had never been recovered. Powell has married Willa with the intention of locating the bounty and then killing her. But Willa has no idea where the money is, so Powell murders her anyway. At which point, John and Pearl run away. Off down the river they go, until they are finally taken in by an elderly lady, Rachel Cooper, played by Lillian and Gish. Lord save little children. You'd think the world would be ashamed to name such a day as Christmas for one of them and then go on in the same old way. My soul is humble when I see the way little ones accept their lot. Lord save little children. The wind blows and the rains are cold. Yet they abide. Soon, Powell comes wandering by on his pale horse, and Rachel recognises Powell not only for a charlatan, but also for a psychopath. While Grubbs' novel is a classic of Southern Gothic, for the film, Lawton hired in cinematographer Stanley Cortez to fuse American pastoral paintings with that of German Expressionist artists. So we get idyllic landscapes shaped with chiaroscuro lighting, punctured with deep silhouettes. And when we're indoors, the image is dominated by acute framing, and those frames are often cut with sharp angles. Knowing that Powell is sure to return to the house, Rachel waits up late into the night, sitting on a rocking chair in the porch, a shotgun lying in her lap. Sure enough, Powell appears and takes to sitting on a tree stump by the garden picket fence. Cortez frames the scene so we are inside the porch, looking out through the gauze netting. Rachel is in the foreground, her profile in silhouette, with Powell outside in the background, where he sits in the moonlight. One of Rachel's adopted children, Ruby, is awakened by the singing, and comes out to the porch with a candle. Shame on you, Ruby. Mooning around the house after that mad dog of a man. Powell has now vanished. Ruby, go get the children out of bed and bring them down here. The play of light and dark and their symbolic associations between good and evil is gently mocked. Subverted where the righteous Rachel is in the shadows with the murderous Powell sitting in the light. The thing is that both Rachel and Powell are firm believers. Only Rachel sees the good book as a shield protecting her from the world's wicked ways. 
while Powell reads scripture to justify his homicidal desires. That one image from the night porch perfectly compounds the story's depiction of virtue and sin. For a long time, lens flare was considered to be a sign of poor cinematography. The director of photography had failed to control the light entering the aperture. But, as with most cinematic dogma, that rule was eventually rejected in favour of innovative and daring use of light. Three-time Oscar winner Conrad Hall was one of the first Hollywood cinematographers to recognise that lens flare could be used as a poetic device. If the light shone in the lens and flared the lens, that was considered uh, a mistake. That would, somebody would report that, the operator would report, oh, we, the sun hit the lens, it flared the lens, it uh, uh, cut. I feel particularly involved in helping make mistakes uh, acceptable uh, to studio heads and, uh, and other people, uh, and the audience even, uh, by using them, by, by blatantly, not, not by mistakes or anything, but by endeavor. Roman Polanski's 1979 adaptation of Thomas Hardy's 1891 novel Tess of the Duberville closely follows the tormented times of a young peasant girl. Played by Nastasia Kinski, Tess is the daughter of John Duberfield, a wasteful, alcoholic peddler who discovers that his family just might be of noble lineage. Going to the aristocratic family she assumes to be distant relations, Tess is raped by the man posing as her cousin. She gives birth to a baby boy who soon dies. But later she meets Angel Clare, played by Peter Firth, the son of a parson. They fall in love and Angel asks Tess to marry him. Greatly worried about her past, Tess writes Angel a letter telling him of how she suffered the assault and the ensuing tragedy. Late one night she slips the note under his door and in the morning Angel greets her with great happiness and appears to be understanding of and sympathetic to the great distresses she has suffered. But later that day, when Tess goes to decorate Angel's room with flowers she has picked from the meadow, she finds the letter still hidden under the mat of Angel's door. He never read it. Tess clutches the letter and Polanski positions the camera so the sun setting in the field behind her suddenly flares the lens. It flares it so greatly, it completely burns the frame to white. Two cinematographers were credited on the film, with Giselaine Cloquet seamlessly replacing Geoffrey Unsworth, who died during the shoot. But no matter who was behind the camera on that day of filming, the decision to flare the lens comes layered with several interpretations. With the man Tess loves named Angel, who was the son of a parson, we can immediately recognise the Christian teaching and its symbolic reference to light. So, when the lens flare all but obliterates Tess from the frame, it is as if Tess's fear of God's judgment has seared her soul. Or, because Hardy wrote his novel as a critique of late 19th century Christian morality, perhaps we should reject the religious reading in favour of a psychological one. Perhaps discovering that Angel has not read the letter, Tess has momentarily been blinded with shock. But either way, the lens flare is not a flaw but a virtue with Polanski showing how a single frame can visualise the theme of an entire film. <laughs>